Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Out of the gates and ready to go. Outkick 360 underway, Wednesday edition. Across the Outkick Network, glad you're with us. Brendan Marks will be with us. He covers UNC and Duke for The Athletic. He'll join us in 20 minutes to discuss the ACC, the Blue Bloods, who's in, who's not, and North Carolina started the season number one. Now they're clearly on the bubble. What needs to happen? Maybe a win against Duke. Marks joins us in 20 minutes. Marcellus Wiley on the show today at the, oh, exactly an hour from right now. Looking forward to chatting with him, plus Mike Griffith of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Clay Travis in hour number three. Griffith is coming on because of the story that came out this morning in the warrant that has been issued for Jalen Carter, the defensive tackle, some consider to be the top player in the draft, in Indianapolis, warrant issued for two misdemeanor charges um, for reckless driving and racing in the crash that took the life of a former teammate and a Georgia staff member back in mid-January. And the details coming out include him changing his story with police and according to reports, and including Griffith reporting in Atlanta Journal-Constitution, left the scene, came back at the request of an officer at 4.15 a.m. after, who knows, over the, the last hour, hour and a half, Uh, what he did or didn't do, but originally he said he was a mile away from the scene. Point being, the stories have changed, and Chad, the question is, what does Jalen Carter do? How does this now move forward through the process where he's currently not in Indy per uh, reporters? He's scheduled to talk today, but he has not been seen. If he's in Indianapolis, Chad, he's not going to be there very long because he's got his attorneys and representatives talking with police to head back to Athens. Yeah, he released a statement that uh, it looked like it was helped. He was drafted by an attorney, but it was written in all caps. I mean, it looks like something he just hammered out. And in that statement, he says, I'm headed back. And here it is, the statement from Jalen Carter. This morning, I received a telephone call from the Athens, Georgia Police Department informing me that two misdemeanor warrants have been issued against me for reckless driving and racing. Numerous media reports also have circulated this morning containing inaccurate information concerning the tragic events of January 15th, 2023. It is my intention to return to Athens and answer the misdemeanor charges against against me and to make certain that the complete and accurate truth is presented. There is no question in my mind that when all of the facts are known that I will be fully exonerated of any criminal wrongdoing. This from Jalen Carter. Now, the police report that has been published by Seth Emerson and others out there is very straightforward. He was racing the car. There were two vehicles. The three, other one was there were the three ve- involved, but yeah. one was his. Yeah, it was it was his car. It was his vehicle, and the, the vehicle that had the tragedy happened with it, and they were racing, going 104 miles per hour and uh, weaving in and out of other cars that were on the road as well at the time. 
and it led to to these uh, this tragic incident. So, look, I, I don't know what Jalen Carter's claiming that he has, and he's going to go defend himself. He has every right to defend himself. There's various reports that there are city uh, cameras that caught all of this. So it, yep. I, if he's not there or wasn't a part of it, I think it'd be pretty easy for him to prove, quite frankly, if that's in fact the case, if he says he's getting exonerated of these charges. Important to keep in mind, just from a legal standpoint, that these are misdemeanor charges. They're not felonies. It's awful. Um, you know, Todd McShay took a lot of heat for saying there were some character concerns about him. And then this comes out, you know, maybe he knew about this. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But uh, look, I, I is it going to affect his draft stock? I don't think so. Not to any great extent. I mean, does he, he, does he fall out of the top five? Maybe. He, according to all of the outlets reporting on this, he faces up to 12 months in prison. So it's For the two misdemeanors. Yes, uh, plus a $1,000 fine. I mean, we're serious. And so... Here are the ba- here's the backstory, and I'm reading straight. And call from the- me crazy, I just don't think he's going to face those 12 months. Well, uh, that's I- the maximum that he could get. I feel like he's going to have a good enough attorney to plead yeah. that down. He's not going to see any real jail time. That's going to affect his career. Again, just talking about this from the NFL right. standpoint, and people are wanting to make the connection between this and and Brandon Miller. And I was getting you know tweets that hey, bring that same energy you guys br- brought to Brandon Miller to Jalen Carter. My response to that would be, it would be the same energy if this happened in season and Kirby Smart didn't suspend him or do anything to him at all after this happened, then we'd carry the same energy. It's two very different stories. This is after the season. We've said throughout, I don't think any of this really affects Brandon Miller's draft stock. He's going to have to answer questions about it and do a good job of answering questions, but he's still going to get drafted in the first three or four picks of the NBA draft. I kind of feel the same about Jalen Carter, uh, unless, Hutton, what you well, say happens, and he actually has to face jail time. Well, so here are the details. I'm just going to read straight from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And McShay's comments came out before the wreck even took place about the character issues. Yeah. Um, so here, here is they have on surveillance footage at the, at the stoplights all the cars they can pinpoint and see them weaving in and out of traffic, and specifically Carter's Jeep taking off from when the light turns green and the other car trying to... T- uh, chase it and, and pick up to it at the next light. Um, so that's on surveillance footage. About, and I'm going to read, it, this is not just the, they ran off the road. This was, I mean, intense. About a mile from the Waffle House in Athens, the expedition's right front tire struck a curb. The car flew off the road, roadway. It sheared two utility poles, slammed into at least two trees before crashing into an apartment building. Willock, who was the offensive lineman killed, he was not wearing a seatbelt. He flew out of the car from the driver's side second row seat. He was pronounced dead at the scene. LaCroix and uh, Chandler LaCroix, she was a staff member at Georgia, unresponsive, had no pulse with, uh, when emergency crews arrived. She was pronounced dead at Athens Hospital. On this night, an Athens police officer asked another person to get Carter back at the scene. So he arrived at about 4.15 a.m., an hour and a half after the crash. Again, all this from the AJC. In a videotaped interview, Carter gave the officer an inconsistent account of what he knew about the crash. The documents reviewed uh, show this through the Journal Constitution. Carter said that he heard the wreck from an apartment complex nearly a mile away. And then later he said he witnessed it from a shorter distance, telling the officer both uh, that, that he had been behind and beside the car that crashed. <laughs> 
Carter denied racing, said he had not been driving fast, but he told the officer that the occupants of the car that crashed were intoxicated, and that's through the documents uh, that were released and reported on. Carter said that he had seen the group downtown. The officer saw no sign that Carter had been drinking. That's also in the record. It's not clear whether the police questioned Carter about why he left the scene or where he went, but the story changed, and also they didn't take his BAC uh, with the toxicology reports because he wasn't on the scene there at the time, and it had been an hour and 15 minutes later, hour and a half later, so to speak. So a lot of questions with this, and those, I believe, are the details that he's referring to through his statement. So the, the inaccurate information is from the story that has the most information, which I would, would be the AJC so. story. Yeah, I would think so. But the question is, if you left and you were side-by-side side with the car that crashed, why did you Why'd continue you keep to go going? and not come back? I mean, that's that's the obvious question to ask. Yeah, and we can jump to conclusions all we want. You know, he's going to have a defense attorney. He's going to go back and try to get his name exonerated in this case, and we'll find out the facts that happen from this point on. Uh, either way, you know, is this another claim of wrong place, wrong time, or was something really dumb being done during this? Uh, I mean, all the evidence points towards just something really dumb was happening with the speeds that were going, with the toxicology report of the, the people who died in this. I mean, there were some bad things going on, and Jalen Carter was in some way around what was happening and then left the scene. Now, he may come out and claim that none of this is true, even though the police report and everything else is saying there's camera footage of all of this happening. So we'll have to wait and see what's next. And he was clocked going at least 83 miles per hour in a 40-mile-per-hour zone um, because he was – neck and neck with the other with the other vehicle that ultimately was involved with the crash. Kirby Smart released this statement um, earlier this afternoon. The charges announced today are deeply concerning, especially as we are still struggling to cope with the devastating loss of two beloved members of our community. We will continue to cooperate fully with the authorities while supporting those families, assessing what we can learn from this horrible tragedy. That from Kirby Smart, head coach of the Bulldogs. You know, it's also, it's just crazy to me that you look at this from an SEC perspective with Brandon Miller and now this, you're talking about two guys. One is most likely to be, will be the first pick in the NBA draft out of the conference. Another guy who could be the first pick in the NFL draft out of the conference, both involved Hutton on the exact same day. Yeah, January 15th. January 15th, 2023, in incidents that resulted in the loss of life tragically to young people. Different circumstances, not equating both and saying it's the exact same thing or any of that, but it's crazy when you pile these things up and say this is what happened with arguably the two most talented men in the SEC in football and in basketball on the exact same day. Crazy. Yeah. And, you know, is this uh, further uh, another reason why – we hear people point to the fact that, well, if you can't be at the top unless you're going to have, you know, uh, guys that are rough around the edges. You know, like that's, that's kind of the line of thinking. I don't have to necessarily subscribe to that. But the teams at top, I mean, if you think about the top teams and just the issues at Georgia, going back a ways from Isaiah Wilson, right? Like I, I, we're going back a few years there. Yeah. But there are plenty of, you know, factors that, were overlooked in the draft process then as well. And, Chad, I, I'm telling you, the fact that this pops up on the days at the Combine, is that a coincidence? 
Look, th- things – no, it, it's not a coincidence. Me, I, I, I don't, don't think, think so The either. timing of it, he was hours away from taking the podium to talk with me. I don't think any of that's a coincidence. And I, I'm just going to go back now to the point on, on both uh, Jermaine Burton in Alabama and Brandon Miller in Alabama. Things will happen. No one would expect a murder to happen within a team and then something like this, this tragedy with Georgia football also. But multiple things happen over the course of a year at almost every athletic program in some way, shape, or form, right? My issue is with how the adults handle it and whether or not there's discipline and whether or not you're attempting to get people to learn something from it. Now, with Jalen Carter, he's no longer under Kirby Smart's jurisdiction. So there's nothing Kirby Smart can do other than cooperate with authorities and talk about whatever he can with them and, and try to move forward with this. At Alabama with Brandon Miller, there was an opportunity for Nate Oates to be about something more than just wins and losses with him. And instead, to me, he took the coward's way out with Brandon Miller and did nothing. And this guy continues to play with everything else circulating around that, that awful story. So, look, that's, that's what I'm more concerned with is how does the program, how does university handle something when bad things happen? They're going to happen. Guys are going to get in trouble Things are going to go awry. We've talked about certain position groups and, and teams and sports. You're going to have some guys you got to keep your thumb on, as an old coach once told me, from time to time, and maybe worry about it a little bit. No one's hoping to worry about this, something this extreme with it, but it's about how you handle it when things arise, to me, and at least with the Alabama situation, it was handled I mean, terribly. And I, I have, only with Jalen Carter, until today, I have only heard solid stories about him behind the scenes where he would pay for the walk-ons meals, for instance, um, and, and, and other things that he's done in the community. So uh, crazy ramifications for a awful decision to leave. And that's really the question that needs to be answered. Why the panic, you know, the, the troublesome decision to say you were a mile away and then later say, no, I was, I was there. Hit us up with your thoughts. I'll kick 360. Chad, we're going to talk ACC hoops in just a moment, but from a conference perspective, giving some thought to our conversation yesterday, what'd you come away with? Well, we're, we're talking so much about the Pac-12, and I'm not so sure that the ACC shouldn't be really worried about the future of college sports and what could be five, ten years down the road from now. Because there is this constant churn of musical chairs that's happening right now. Oregon and Washington, according to reports, are saying it's a matter of time before they get an invite to the Big Ten. We had Brett McMurphy on yesterday. He repeated something I've said throughout, that we're headed towards two 24-team super conferences with the Big Ten and the SEC being their own division of college football. Now, I do think that there is a scenario where the Pac-12 is falling apart right now and the Big 12 is in at least a little bit more of a situation of power where they could take on Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, some other valuable football programs, properties, brands, from the Pac-12 and sort of force a merger where suddenly they're a 20-24 team super conference combining the best of the Big 12 and the best of the Pac-12. So when you start putting all the pieces of this puzzle together, where's the ACC other than Clemson and Florida State threatening to leave if they don't give them more money and more of a share of the revenue? If I'm Wake Forest, if I'm Syracuse and Boston College and some of these programs across the ACC, I'm getting a little bit nervous right now about what happens when the SEC comes calling because they're acting in a defense mode to the Big Ten adding Washington and Oregon, and they come and take Clemson and Florida State and North Carolina and whoever they want. And where are you left? 
Because geographically, now what we're talking about is the ACC's on an island. Big 12, Pac-12 could merge, and it makes a little bit of sense. I don't think the ACC schools would merge with the Pac-12, as an example, right? So just keep well, your eye on that ball as well. Grace, the saving grace for them, though, is the grant of rights deal they have with ESPN. Which is now, though... 2034, I think. Right, but which now, when you see the deals that Big Ten and SEC are getting, right. it's pennies no doubt. compared to them. They're, and that, what, that's 36 why, million, but it's more than the Big 12. Right, currently. well, that's why Florida State and Clemson, and I'm sure they've had some backdoor discussions with the SEC or Big Ten or someone. Yeah. They're now getting antsy, saying, we're locked into a bad deal as we get years into this down the road. We need more of this money to stay on board and stay in with the ACC, or we continue our flirtation with another conference. It's it's just one to watch. It's all about the Pac-12 right now, and rightfully well, so, because they're the one negotiating a media rights deal, and they can't get anything good done right now. So we're talking about the Pac-12, but my big takeaway is let's also keep an eye on the ACC about what happens there. Well, and, and pointing back to yesterday's conversation with Brett McMurphy, I asked him, I said, can the ACC learn – something from how bad it's been for the Pac-12 currently with teams bolting, sitting pat, saying that you're going to get the big media rights deal moving forward. You've got teams saying they need more. If you look around the landscape, that's what it's going to eventually come down to. And, you know, who's leading the conference? Is their commissioner going to be the new commissioner of the Big Ten, for instance? Like a ton of questions to be answered before we see any more conference realignment, which typically happens around July 4th weekend, the last two years. Coming up, we stay in the ACC. Brendan Marks joins us from The Athletic. He covers Duke in North Carolina. We discuss the Blue Bloods as we head into tournament season. Next, on so now Kick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming up, NFL headlines from Indianapolis that include two veteran quarterbacks we'll dive into that first we say hello to brendan marks the athletic college basketball writer who covers unc and duke they'll tip off saturday at 6 30 eastern and many believe that the tar hills need a win to get into the tournament brendan thanks for the time man how are you yeah i'm doing well thanks for having me guys i appreciate you you more surprised with what duke has done with john shire going unbeaten at home or UNC and where they are right now based on where they were to begin the season. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got to be UNC. I mean, we're talking about the number one preseason team in the country being on the bubble, like not, not being a tournament lock at this point in the season is just insane to me. And I mean, since the field expanded in 1985, no preseason number one has ever missed the field. So the fact that UNC enters, you know, conference tournament week needing a win against Duke on Saturday and then still probably needing to make some noise in the ACC tournament, uh, it's it's just something that I never would have fathomed before the season started. So what has happened? What has caused this fall from number one for, for the Tar Heels? 
Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things you can point to. Number one, uh, in terms of shooting the ball, this is on pace to be one of the worst uh, three-point shooting teams in North Carolina history. Uh, a couple of years ago, the, the season that COVID ended, uh, when the tournament didn't end up getting played, was the worst that UNC had ever been, shooting 30.4% from three. And this team, as of a couple of weeks ago, was below that mark. So they've luckily uh, bumped it up a little bit with a couple of wins here lately over Virginia, over Notre Dame, over Florida State. But shooting the basketball is a big reason for the on-court struggles. And, you know, they've had some health issues, too. Armando Baycott is their best player. He's been in and out of the lineup with injuries. Pete Nance has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. Um, R.J. Davis, one of their starting guards, had a finger injury all year long. So uh, you look at not shooting the ball well, not being fully healthy, um, and then, you know, there's, a, there's some things in terms of chemistry that just haven't been there. You know, the guy that they lost off last year's championship team, Brady Manick, was really the hardline guy for that team. He was the one who, when things were going right, said, this is unacceptable. I'm not standing for it. We got to get better. And they don't quite have somebody who's that assertive in the locker room this time around. Uh, so I think you put all those things together and, and you've got the Tar Heels where they are now. And Brendan, I, you know, you talked about the shooting with North Carolina. This is a fluky sport whenever you get into something that's single elimination in the NCAA tournament. And I look back a year ago and I see a team that was very lucky. Uh, they hit a lot of tough threes in that run, uh, it, it, both against Duke in Cameron Indoor to end Coach K's career at home and then throughout that NCAA tournament. How much of this was just simply they got really fortunate a year ago to go on that run late in the season, and maybe this is just really who they are this season? Yeah, I think you could even extrapolate that picture out. You know, this this sort of core group of Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, and Armando Baycott, the three guys who, uh, you know, were sort of the big three, if you will, you know, Outside of one month in March last year, the three-year sample size on that core says that they're just sort of an average basketball team. So um, certainly, I think they, you know, they, they, did they step up their play last March? A hundred percent. But you know, I think we we probably did not give Brady Manick enough credit last year. You know, if you go back and crunch the numbers, by the end of last season, Brady Manick was attempting almost ten threes a game and making forty-five percent of them. Uh, that is just unreal volume, unreal efficiency, and you know, North Carolina was never going to find a player to replicate that, but across the board as a team, they haven't been able to this season. Brenda, do you see a Carolina team that can make the tournament? You know, this is a crazy thing, right? You saw what happened last year. It's hard to quit that idea. Um, and, and I'm not saying that Brady Mannix walking through the door. There's no, like, magic formula. But lately, North Carolina has started to look more like the team we thought they were going to be. Not not totally that team. Um, you know, Armando Baycott had one point against Florida State earlier this week, and the Tar Heels went on the road. But you've seen them shoot the basketball a little bit better. You've seen their assist percentage rise, their turnover percentage drop. Like, there are signs that they are starting to figure things out. Um, you just sort of wonder if it's too little too late. So that's why Saturday's game is so huge. It would be you know, a real resume booster for North Carolina to get that win over Duke. And uh, at that point, it would mean they'd have less work to do going into the ACC tournament for sure. It started off shaky for John Shire, but it's been very strong uh, throughout the seasons. It's gone on for his first year in Duke, you know, first ever ACC head coach to sweep the home schedule in their first season as head coach. Overall, Brendan, how, how would you rate John Shire, the head coach of Duke basketball, filling in for some very big shoes for Coach K in year one? Yeah, gigantic shoes. And, you know, I, I think there are some clear positives that he has accomplished. You, you mentioned the undefeated home record 
first coach in ACC history to do that. That's obviously huge. Like that's something Coach K didn't do over his last eight seasons. And, you know, Coach K, you think, you know, in that time, Duke produced multiple number one draft picks, uh, made multiple final fours, won the national title in 2015. And Coach K still didn't do that. So give John Shire a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, I think the fact that this team is clearly getting better this late in the season, you always want to be playing your best ball in February and this team is. So again, I think that's something that you maybe don't expect for a first year head coach. And then on the flip side, look, you know, let's, let's not say that he's been perfect. You know, there have been some historically bad losses. Um, you know, there have been multiple 20 point blowouts. Uh, this is a team that started the year off in the top 10 by most preseason metrics and they're still unranked last week of the regular season. So I think that we can credit him for stepping into a tough situation and for continuing to get better. Um, but, but certainly, you know, let's not act like everything has been perfect and hunky dory all season. So, you know, I think you really, if you had to give him a letter grade right now, it's probably a B, uh, with the potential to turn that into something better, depending on what they do in the postseason. Let's complete the research triangle there in the Raleigh Durham area and talk about NC state. What, what do you think of the job Kevin Keats has done with that program. Duke survived them last night. Uh, but when you look at those three programs now, is NC State becoming more and more of a factor under Keats? It can be. And and listen, you know, when the ACC has been at its best, um, even going back to the 80s, like before the Duke-Carolina rivalry was as big as it is, it was Carolina and NC State. You know, back when it was Dean Smith and Jimmy V, you know, winning back-to-back titles in the 80s. Uh, you look at some of the players that NC State was producing, like that's when the ACC was at its best. And, and certainly uh, that hasn't been the case at NC State for a couple of years. But, you know, realistically, Kevin Keats needed to win this year to keep his job. Um, you know, ha- had completely bottomed out last year. The, the floor fell out from underneath the Wolfpack. And give the guy a lot of credit. He brought in a whole new staff, made some tough decisions. He even said last night after the loss, like I had to swallow my pride in a lot of areas. You know, get rid of some guys who maybe he knew, bring in some new faces, obviously hit the transfer portal hard and, you know, hit a couple of home runs with Jarkel Joyner and DJ Burns. But, like, you know, I think NC State is, is a legitimate tournament team. I know a lot of people have not projected as, like, an 8-9-10 seed. Um, but with their backcourt, I, I think it's a team that could potentially make some noise in March. And so, yeah, certainly I, I think that this season Kevin Keats has proven the caliber of coach he is, and now it's about doing that on a yearly basis. That's been the thing that's been a hiccup for him at NC state so far. If he can get over that, then, you know, I'd personally be a fan of it. I'd love to watch more good basketball rather than bad. Brendan marks our guest from the athletic on outkick 360. How much of the bottom of the ACC it's bad. How much of that is weighing down the top edge of this conference and ultimately affecting their, not just ranking, but future seeding in the tournament. Yeah, listen, you guys don't got to tell me it's bad. I've been watching this all year. It's brutal. It is. <laughs> I mean, some of these games, like, I, I think, uh, you know, the Frisbee dog defecating on the court at Louisville yes. last night is sort of <laughs> the perfect example of, you know, where that season is. But, yeah, it, here's the thing. The ACC, historically, um, even since it expanded in 2012-2013, has always had national title contenders. You know, Duke, Carolina, UVA. Um, you know, last year, Miami makes the elite a, you know, a couple of years ago, NC state had a couple of good runs, sweet 16 right now. The ACC doesn't just have a bad bottom, but it has a below normal top. You know, it's very possible. The ACC doesn't get a top four seed in the NCAA tournament. You know, right now, if you're looking, you know, Virginia was the team that was sort of expected to carry the mantle this year. And they've been in a tailspin the last three weeks. 
So certainly the bottom of the league is pulling the ACC down. Um, you know, I think there are four teams, Louisville, uh, Syracuse, Georgia Tech, maybe Notre Dame, that are uh, they, they haven't won a single quad one game all season. They're like 0-31 as of this morning. Um, I mean, obviously that's going to bring you down. But it's also the fact that the top isn't where it is. And so that means that teams in the middle don't really have – once you get into the conference play, an opportunity to, to boost their standing. So the last two years, it's been the same song and dance. The ACC flames out in the non-conference. Everybody beats up on them all year. And last year, we saw what they were able to do in the tournament. We'll see if that's replicable this season. But uh, certainly has not been the best basketball this season. I'm, I'm, I'm glad this season is coming to an end in that respect. You know, we saw the SEC go through this where they kind of bottomed out as a basketball conference. They got you know four or five teams into the tournament one year, not many at all. And there was this edict from Greg Sankey to say, we got to up our game. You know, we got to invest more in men's basketball, facilities, coaches, everything else. And then suddenly, you know, Rick Barnes comes to the conference and other big name coaches. And SEC basketball looks pretty good right now. I'm looking at the bottom of the ACC. I'm looking at Syracuse and Florida State and Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. At least three of those we know about to go through some coaching changes. And I see programs that could win. What do you think about where they are right now, Brendan, and how this is kind of an inflection point, especially for some programs we've seen have a lot more success? Leonard Hamilton's had a lot of success at Florida State. Bray had a lot of success at Notre Dame for a time. Where do you see those programs going next, and how can that help the conference? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned the SEC because the ACC got caught up in the same trap, just the reverse of it. You know, the ACC decided that all of a sudden we needed to be more competitive in football, started putting more resources into men's fo- into football, uh, which hasn't worked out, by the way. And as a result, you know, your bread and butter, your moneymaker, historically, basketball falls by the wayside. So it, you're looking at some teams, like you just mentioned, Syracuse, Notre Dame, Georgia Tech. I mean, having recent success, Florida State. Um, but listen, the ACC is 100% in an era of transition. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen that with Roy Williams. We've seen that with Coach K. We've seen it, you know, at Louisville. Um, you know, we're about to see it at Notre Dame. Are we going to see it at Georgia Tech? Are we going to see it at Florida State? Are we, I mean, God, I don't know that I'm going to see it at Syracuse in my lifetime. Um, Jim Beheim's just going to stay forever, I guess. But <laughs> at the end of the day, you are talking about a new era of coaches coming in. And I think that, you know, there are some who have probably stayed past their prime, but also, um, you know, I, I think it's also on the league as a whole. You know, you're putting all of this emphasis on football and trying to be competitive and revenue gaps. And guess what? You're, you're not making up a whole lot of leeway in that respect, but you've also fallen behind in, in terms of one of your biggest money makers. So um, it's tricky. You got to nail these hires if you're these teams. Like, you know, this is the first time since I've been covering the league that I would say that Leonard Hamilton has ever looked tired. Mm. You know, he looks fatigued, and that's not something you ever said. Um, so, you know, there, there is, I think, infrastructure to win in a lot of those places, but um, I don't think that this is going to be the sort of situation where the ACC rebounds next year and we're talking about it as the best league in college basketball. This is going to be a multi-year transition that's going to sort of chart if the league can get back to what it was in its heyday. What has Coach K been up to? <laughs> lots of speaking, lots of gardening, lots of wine drinking. Um, you know, basically living, you know, every grandfather's dream. Uh, you know, he's, he's been around. Let's, let's not forget that. You know, he has a lifetime deal with Duke university as a ambassador. So he still has his sixth floor office in the basketball building attached to Cameron indoor. Um, 
but he's he's been away from it. You know, he's not going to practice every day. He's not going to the games. He's been to one game all year. He uh, is going and seeing his grandson. He is going and seeing his granddaughter's, you know, middle school plays and dance recitals. Um, you know, he's filming commercials for the V Foundation. He's, you know, consulting with NBA teams. He's, he's doing conversations with LeBron. Like, you know, he's really just sort of spread his wings and expanded his portfolio. Um, obviously, he's always going to have a presence in Durham and at Duke. That's never going to go away. But, you know, for the time being, I, I actually really applaud him because, it would have been really easy to sort of stay and linger and have John Shire looking over his shoulder. And I think one of the reasons that Shire has been so successful and the reason he's been able to tinker as much as he has uh, is because Kay hasn't been there sort of looming in the background. Brennan, have you ever requested when you're on, you know, media row to have the spots next to you and the spots behind you vacated to give yourself enough room the way coach K can when he shows up at a game at Duke <laughs> where everything around him is empty, so there's just this protective orb around Coach K so no one can bother him while he watches his team. It, it, it's few and far between. You're right. He's not hovering over John Shire purposefully, which I think is great. Uh, but what do you think about that scene where it's uh, him and his wife and then no one else around him at a game? Yeah, that. well, that, listen, that's the thing that he always said, even going back to last year over the summer. Um, I mean, I had a one-on-one interview with him recently and it's the same point he's brought up where would we sit because inherently when coach k is in cameron guess where the spotlight is going doesn't matter that he's not the coach anymore it's coach k court they've got his banner for the most career wins hanging in one of the end zones like so i I just think inherently there's always going to be some not conflict there but there's always going to be a a a a conflict of attention at least. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I wish that as a lowly sports writer, I had even like <laughs> one iota of the clout in that respect. Cause I was taking some bows last night from the crazies, but uh, you know, I, I guess if you stick around 42 years, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be able to carve out a spot for myself too. Brendan Marks has been our guest, the athletic. You can read his work on Duke and Carolina. They tip off on Saturday evening. Always a great game. Uh, Brendan, thank you for the time, man. Great coverage as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys, and uh, enjoy the game on Saturday. Get to work on that protected media seat, too. Yeah, good luck. I, I want a progress update at some point on how that goes. Yeah, I'm just going to keep building out a helmet until I have my uh, <laughs> own little niche car. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Brendan Marks there from The Athletic. Coming up, more headlines. We've got Marcellus Wiley, who will join us in a little over 20 minutes. And when we return, we air our grievance of the week. Primary complaint next on Outkick 360. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Sixth and Peabody, our location with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Hutton Withrow with you. Coming up, Marcellus Wiley joins us. That'll be in 15 minutes. Every Wednesday at this time, though, it's time for Primary Complaint. It's time to air our top grievance of the week. You can complain all you want. My job is so unfulfilling. Go 
away from your feelings. It's time for Primary Complaint on Outkick 360. My primary complaint this week, Chad, I, I remember a day where I could go into a barber shop, sit down, and be done in 15 to 20 minutes, right? Quick haircut, in and out. I walk in to a barber shop here in Nashville. Nice, nice place. Walk-ins welcome on the door. No appointment needed is how I take that. So as I walk in, literally there are two people working. No one else is in the building at all. Sorry, we're booked all day was the response. If you don't want my business, just tell me. I won't be insulted instead of making me book an appointment and come back an hour later. That's my primary complaint. They gave you the, sir, we don't do beard trimmings. We're sorry. Anyone with a beard that walks in here is not welcome. You can turn around and walk right back out. I need to turn around and walk right back out on uh, mentally challenging things. Um, The rabbit holes that I put myself through. Here's what my primary complaint is right now. It's not the rabbit hole that we sometimes choose to go down. It's the fact that I can't avoid the rabbit hole. I hear one thing in the studio or hear people talking about the Murdaugh murders and the trial. And what do I do? I go out and consume six straight hours of docu-series footage on both HBO Max and Netflix about this trial because I can't get enough of it. I can't stop myself. Here's my latest obsession. Every day, the New York Times posts this spelling bee challenge where they give you a collection of letters, and then you have to figure out how many words you can spell with the letters with one letter in the middle that has to be in every single word. Uh, I'm, we're showing on the screen for those watching the show right now, the letter that's connecting everything was G. Um, also I'm, the Wheel of Fortune guest. <laughs> I'm sitting, uh, I'm sitting in, a, in the parking lot out here earlier and see this come on. I'm oh, like, no. well, you know what? I'm like Barney from How I Met Your Mother. If there's a challenge thrown out, challenge accepted. And I decide to pull out a piece of paper and start jotting down. I got to nine, by the way, of the 35 words that you can find. That's not good at all. It's not good enough. But then I do this, and I think, well, I'm not as smart as I once thought. So now I feel dumber, (laughs) and I also feel like I've done a lot of things. I've wasted time because I cannot avoid the rabbit hole. Someone, please help me. That's my primary complaint. I don't think that's the worst thing you could you could have, Chad. I mean, like the, these rabbit holes, you sometimes learn a lot of things. Like the other day, I was learning about how the fact that it cost two point one cents to make one penny. That doesn't make any sense. My primary complaint is just the penny, and it came about because, like, again, like I, I seldom ever pay with cash, but sometimes I'm at the point where I just don't want to hear like, "Oh, uh, your change is two dollars and ninety six cents." Because at that point, I'm just like, well, one, what am I going to do with all this change? It's like, where do I put it? But then when I'm just looking at the penny, it's like this thing is worthless at this point. Yet we still have it. Now, they say they might eventually phase it out. But to this point, we still have to deal with it. I mean, people just walk by pennies. Like, they literally, like, people won't even take the time to bend over and pick up a penny. And going on the rabbit hole, I found a guy that trained his, like, birds to just pick up coins across like all of uh, I think it started off in China there was a guy that also did it in New York and then these people weren't even working by the end of the day because they were just having their birds go out find coins and bring it back to them <laughs> it's not the worst worst uh, plan I've, I've seen put into place but but yeah the fact that we're still using the pennies to this day I'm frustrated I'm tired of it let's just phase it out now what the is pi- this Game of Thrones the, 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 training the birds to bring back money the carrier pigeons yeah I was watching uh, a show uh, Mayor of Kingstown with Jeremy Renner okay. Jeremy Renner uh, we hope you're on the men by yeah, the way well after his uh, accident but there there was an episode where there's a guy who sends a carrier pigeon to his son that's like across the lake across a great lake 
And he puts a message there and he goes back. And his reasoning, he's like, you still send pigeons? Like, people do this? And he said, yeah. He's like, you, he's like, you got a phone, right? And he said, yeah, I miss so many calls every day, but I've never missed a pigeon. Never <laughs> missed a pigeon carrier. No one misses the pigeon carrier when you want to that's send a, something to your son. That's a power move. And I think, yeah, you know, the, the man makes a lot of sense. Davey makes a lot of sense about the penny. It is a fickle little beast, the penny. And if we're spending 2.1 cents on every penny made, I'm asking, the, I mean, are we spending more money on making pennies or, you know, the military aid we've sent to Ukraine? <laughs> Which mean, one's the bigger government expense right now? Chad, we need to look into this. There are way too many pennies, right? Like, surely we're not producing. Uh, I would say that mount. production of change has gone drastically down. I think so. With the advent of plastic. Yeah. I'll look how much the U.S. spends on that per year. But speaking of rabbit holes, have you gone down the birds aren't real rabbit hole? No. Uh, you need to check that one out. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Chad on wishes this. birds weren't real. <laughs> hey, sounds like heaven to me, Davey. A, a world where birds aren't real? That's my Well, the my pigeons dream. are just the government-created ones. That's all you need to know. Yeah, for those that don't know, I have a, a, a strict hatred of birds. Any winged creature that flies, I hate them. I, I fear them to, to an extent. It's not like if I'm outside and there's birds in the ground, I go running and screaming. But I don't like anything where I'm, I'm out of their element. Yeah, you I want, don't like you something that can... You once described it to me as... I don't like a rat with wings. A rat with, yeah. Well, they, and they are. You know, pigeons are rats with wings because they carry disease and they fly from <laughs> town to town spreading disease, much like a rat would spread disease. But it's more of the, I just don't like the idea of something that small coming in, affecting my day and flying away from me. I want to be able to get my hands on the animal that does something to me, right? Like, that, I don't like that I'm out of there. They are of the air. And then when they come to the ground... I feel like I'm out of their element because they can go right back to the air. So Sim- Similar to the way I'd feel about you know anything in the water. I'm completely out of my element when I encounter a fish. So like an eagle can see like a mile out yeah. something, right? Eagles like, are beautiful. They're beautiful birds. Yes, yes. Um, but, I still don't like them. But the course. eyesight thing. So I was having a conversation. I don't know what sparked this. You mentioned something about uh, the, the bird and the flying. I'm thinking about the, the line of thinking I had a couple days ago. So... I saw this graphic, it, and maybe everyone's seen it on Instagram, but you can see how the, what the animal sees versus what the human would see, like side by side. So it goes from snake to bird to dog to cat, and like colorblind versus not, how far they can see and they can't. How do we know that? How do we know what the bird sees as it flies? I mean, honest question. Like, you want me to believe this, but like, it's a, who, it's a who said, question. you know what, I'm smart enough to figure this out? Uh, that this is what the bird sees based on the you know the genetic compensa- compensation of of whatever they're you know comparing to us. Do you want me to book an optometrist? Yeah, well, can you no, book I an don't, animal I don't, optometrist? No, you, you need a zoologist, apparently, not an optometrist. It's got to be as, but yeah, but it's also, I guess they're doing it by like they're studying the human eye, right? And then they're comparing their eye to the human eye and then showing the differences and then somehow they extrapolate that out to say they're seeing this much better than we are like, because what of the, snake sees. the layers like, to it. So they see practically nothing? Like, how? I, I'm I, amazed again, it's by It's all black and white for them. I'm I don't a, get it. Yeah, that's, that's a great point that I've never even thought about. And now I also want to go down this rabbit hole of the birds aren't real at all <laughs> that Davey mentioned, but... I'll send you some some material. That's that's an excellent point. I'm sure someone in our YouTube chat will have the answer to this. Oh, I'm sure. As to how they know. 
Like the, I'm sure Nick will have it. Have we, you know, transported Nick, a human brain into a dog skull with the eyeballs, Again, where they like, can see what they look like? You I can mean, determine the smartest animals by what they can retain and what you, you know, what they are taught. I get that, or you know, how they retain information or whatever. But um, <laughs> our YouTube chat, by the way, one person said, Chad, it just sounds like you have a healthy curiosity about life, and oh. then Paul just says, I agree with Hutton <laughs> oh. on how do we know what animals see. I don't, I don't get it. I'm confused by it. Um, you know what we're seeing in the NCAA? Change. Yesterday was Mark Emmert's final day as president of the NCAA. Good luck, Charlie Baker, because you're replacing someone who, well, let's face it, accomplished practically nothing as the uh, president, as the fifth president, where, I mean, you name someone in athletics, and I'm sure they had a beef based on their title, from presidents to ADs to boosters to athletes to coaches staff members he once said that the the president of the NCAA would not have the power to implement certain rules and regulations and then he stepped away from all things NIL and we are where we are right now just seeing his face angers me look at Stuart Mandel's tweet Mark Emmert's last day this was yesterday let's take a moment to highlight his accomplishments over the last 12 years and then you just list nothing <laughs> That's how I feel. It's, it's a, good. Let's go. Nowhere to go. Let's but go, up. Baker. This is the reverse John Shire. Like John Shire taking over for Coach K. The reverse of that is Charlie Baker taking over for Mark Emmert. Nowhere to go but down if you're Shire. Yeah. Nowhere to go but up if you're Baker taking over for Emmert. It's an impossible job, but you can still have some success within there, within that framework. Marcellus Wiley joins us next on Outkick 360.